Welcome back to Film Streak. So my name is Rob, and I'm going to recap the latest movies that I've seen, all new movies, all new movies that I've never seen before. Uh, not necessarily new releases, but some new stuff that's just been on my watch list or been kind of circling around, and I've finally gotten around to watching them. So let's take a look at our first selection here. We're going to start with, uh, we did 1 through 15, so now we're going to do 16 through 22. So that's a whole new batch of movies, and let's get into it. Number 16, The Card Counter, directed by, written and directed by Paul Schrader. Um, I really wasn't sure how to feel about this. One, because in a previous episode, I talked about Paul Schrader's film, uh, Light Sleeper, which, um, you know, on the surface might seem like a similar type of story. And, you know, maybe he writes and creates these stories about similar types of characters, the kind of loner, uh, you know, the guy who's on the outside or in a tough situation and can't quite get his life together or make sense of things around him. But, you know, the card counter here, this was a really interesting story in the sense that it was about a guy who, uh, at a glance, just seems like he's a gambler. He loves playing cards and he's kind of mastered the form of counting cards and knowing the games inside and out, the rules and how you size up other players and that kind of thing. But when you start to see like parts of his past and where he's come from and, and why this is his life now, uh, whether it's because he was actually in prison, he actually served time in prison and this is where he kind of developed his skill. Or when you see he was in prison because of some things that he did when he was in the military. He was in the military prison. And you see that uh, there's some really dark, uh, troubling things in his past. And, you know, part of this movie is about him trying to get through that and work his way towards a better life, a better future, but also having to deal with those things in his past. So it's an interesting look at a, a man who's built a life built a regimen and a structure for himself that at least keeps him stable, keeps him kind of moving in a, you know, in a forward motion, but is still getting hung up on things. And whether that's dealing with, um, you know, issues from the military or things that he had, you know, kind of the trauma of going through prison life, um, he's found a, a peace or at least like a harmony with playing cards and knowing all the ins and outs of the games. And so, you know, part of the story is that uh, he meets several people throughout, you know, playing different in different card games. Uh, one of them is a, a really interesting character, an interesting turn by Tiffany Haddish, who, you know, if you know her from like stand up comedy or even like comedic roles in other movies, here is not that. And in, in a good way. I mean, she's really bringing like a, a, a real dramatic sense of, uh, of realism and just a, a real natural energy that, that kind of offsets everything that Oscar Isaac brings to his character of William. You know, uh, Tiffany Haddish has a, just a natural kind of charisma and energy that is always, I mean, it shows through in everything she's done, but here it really offsets and, and highlights some things that this other character, William, uh, lacks and maybe wants to have in his life. So it's 
it's an interesting dynamic. It's really fun to watch. And she's not in the whole movie, but in the scenes that she is in, um, you can feel like there's there's something that's good for this character that's uh, that's possible. You know, there's an opportunity here that this guy who's trying to get things sorted out in his life, this may be the way to do it. This person being a part of it. Now, the other thing is that he also meets this kid named Kirk with a C, played by uh, Ty Sheridan, who, you know, his father dealt with some issues in the military also related to William. And so, you know, he's looking to maybe get some justice for that. And this all starts to revolve, you know, the story starts to uh, kind of rotate around the character played by Willem Dafoe, who is uh, more of a figure that's in everybody's past, but starts to become kind of core to the story towards the end as they start to realize this is the guy that uh, caused a lot of headaches and a lot of trauma for everybody involved. So, you know, part of it is uh, them trying to figure out where he is and, and how to get to him. And the kid wants to basically, you know, take an eye for an eye with him. But William is really of the mind that you need to let that go. You need to look forward. You've got your life ahead of you. Don't get hung up on this. I'm already hung up on it. You know, uh, there's there's this there's this distance and detachment from his mother uh, uh, the kid, Kirk, who can't quite make peace with everything that's happened to his family. And so, you know, th- there's a lot that's part of it's like kind of domestic dysfunction and, and the drama that comes with that. But also it's about a, a single person, a, a man who's just trying to get his life right. And I, I really thought that was interesting because, look, when I talked about Light Sleeper, you know, I feel like it was a similar kind of premise, uh, maybe even a similar type of character. But, you know, the problems I had with that film weren't the performances. It wasn't even the story or the premise. It was more about the uh, the kind of result of it. Like, uh, you know, a big thing I had a problem with was the music, even some of the way it was shot and, you know, just the pacing of it. Uh, it just didn't really work for me. And yet this one, it felt very interesting in the sense that it was very quiet. It was very kind of slow burn, very uh, mild mannered, or, or at least on the surface, a very mild approach to this kind of a of a of a film. And and yet there there aren't a lot of parts where it's like a thriller. Um, it doesn't get too suspenseful or, or intense, but I mean it does have some moments, but it's really uh, measured, really calculated, and I really like that because I think it really. It spoke to the character, the nature of the character himself, that he he's very careful and very thoughtful and precise. And this movie felt like that. And so I really liked it. I, I really thought it was uh, it was it was put it this way. It landed with me much better than Light Sleeper and maybe more in line with some of other, you know, Paul Schrader's other films. So uh, I would say I'd give that one a chance. I mean, it's a pretty new release. I think it just came out recently, maybe in the last half of 2021. And I will say the music actually was really, really well done. Um, it really fit the tone and the, and the, the, I guess, the premise of the film itself. So uh, that's the card counter. Number 17, let's get into this one. We're going to talk about what I assume and what I've been told and what I understand is really a classic. 
And yet somehow I never saw it. And that is a film called The Verdict, directed by Sidney Lumet, the great Sidney Lumet, who I've admired many of his films. And I, I you know, I've admired a lot of his, uh, I guess, his persona, like things that I've seen in interviews and read in you know, books. I mean, he's got a book that I read of making movies. And I really think um, it's uh, it's one of his better films that somehow I just never got to see. Now, also, it's got Paul Newman and what I think was it was not a star making role because he was already a star. I mean, Paul, Paul Newman was famous from way back, but it just showed that he made, you know, he was able to make a transition from being the kind of younger, you know, uh, superstar, you know, A-list actor who was in Cool Hand Luke and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, all these earlier movies he did. But the verdict really showed that he had some real weight and real depth to not only his performance, but his his appearance and his uh, just the way he carried himself. You know, he was able to bring a new level of, uh, I don't know, like adultness to this role that I think maybe a lot of people didn't see before that. Uh, I know for me, I certainly had a, a, a specific picture of what and who Paul Newman was on film that, uh, you know, this film really kind of turned on everything. Um, you know, he plays a, a, a drunk and an ambulance chasing lawyer that has a drinking problem and can't quite figure out, um, how to find how to find good clients, how to find a case that he can work on. And he's just really lost his way. And part of that is compounded by the fact that he's older and he's, you know, kind of on the outs with everybody around him, his his partner and, and you know, his, his girlfriend. And it's like everybody's just kind of like disappointed in him and discouraged by him and. Uh, taking him to task on like, what's your problem and get it together. And so, you know, the fact that Paul Newman was able to look at himself as a superstar and say, you know what, I'm playing this guy because this guy's got real problems and he's a person that, that can turn things around if he had the right shot. Um, so this was really an interesting film because I, uh, on the sense of, being a courtroom drama, but also just in the procedural format, you know, that I feel like there weren't a lot of films before this that were like this, but after this film, there were a lot of films that were like this. And even so much that, you know, it kind of moved into the TV space where, you know, you have people like Dick Wolf and David E. Kelly, and they made their livings off of courtroom dramas every week with, you know, whether it's Law and Order or, um, you know, shows like The Practice or, you know, where these lawyers are, are trying to make their cases and trying to, you know, keep their lives together and fighting against the odds and things come apart and they lose witnesses and they, you know, they, they struggle with it. And so, um, and not only that, but struggle with their own personal demons and addictions and, and issues. And so, um, I feel like this was one that if you look at it now, it probably seems a little bit kind of basic and quaint even, 
But if you think about it in terms of when it came out, you know, in 1982, this was way ahead and really set the tone then for courtroom type dramas that came afterwards. Uh, or at least that's my perspective of it. Um, also, man, a beer with a raw egg in it, like where did, was this the first, I mean, I'd never heard of that before, but when I saw him do that, I, what, what is that? Where, where'd that come from? Like, is that a real thing? <laughs> um, I don't know if that's a real cure for anything, but um, if you see it in the film and want to give it a shot, go ahead. Um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting to see the the way that Paul Newman took this story uh, or this character in this story and made something out of it. Because I think in terms of the on the core premise, I mean, it's an interesting case um, and it's about, you know, uh, medical malpractice and some, you know, doctors or, or medical professionals making some mistakes and, you know, putting someone, uh, into a, like a near death kind of comatose state, which, you know, um, how many, how many courtroom drama, courtroom cases have we seen like that? So really it's not about the story of the, of the film. It's about the character and how he makes his way through that. Um, and I think Paul Newman for being such a big star of the day and, and really in the history of cinema to, to take, to take that story and take that character and really make it something new for himself and for film. Um, I thought it was really well done. And I mean, clearly it's one of those that I think, you know, he gives this closing argument, uh, at the end of the film that, is really kind of a Hail Mary. It's just, he knows the case is stacked against him. He doesn't have any witnesses. The witnesses that he did have to testify either backed out or disappeared or they got cross-examined to all hell. And, you know, their, their testimony was stricken. So he had very little to work with. And eventually, you know, it comes down to him making a plea to the jury and to the audience to say, you know, to, to basically look at himself or look into himself and see the problems that he's dealing with and put that out on the table as a metaphor, um, as an allegory for like, here are the things that trouble us as a society where we choose to do wrong or we choose uh, apathy even. And, we can't make that better unless we make the right choices. We've got to get this sorted out. I've got to get this sorted out and things will turn around for me. And by the end of the film, you realize that is what happens. And so, you know, maybe it's a little bit of like narrative license that this just one speech that he gives this one monologue actually wins a case. Like, I don't know how realistic that would be in a true court of law, but for, for a dramatic, you know, exercise, I thought it was really well done. Um, so, you know, you could look at it now as being like a 40-year-old movie and think, wow, this just really looks kind of aged. But think about it in those times. Think about it when it came out and, you know, the impact it, it had and, and kind of the themes that were in it that are still probably relevant to a lot of people today. And in that sense, I think you'll find it's a winner. And I, I would suggest you check it out. Um, you know, if you're interested in stories, which look, I'll get to this in a minute, but if you're interested in stories that are about, 
characters or, or, you know, figures that are dealing with looking for redemption and, and resolution, uh, trying to overcome, you know, their own failures or their, you know, overcome the odds. Um, this one's a really, I think it's a really important one in terms of cinema, but uh, this was a really good example of one man kind of showing how that all works. So that's The Verdict. That's directed by Sidney Lumet. And give that one a shot for sure. Okay, so number 18, The Edge. Directed by Lee Tamahori, starring Anthony Hopkins, Alec Baldwin, uh, Al McPherson's in it. Um, this one was an interesting one because I've always wanted to see this movie. I mean, I wanted to see it when it came out. It just looked really interesting to me. But looking at it now, I mean, this is a movie that they just they don't make anymore. Um, you know, it's about uh, a billionaire who takes his wife and, and a crew, a photography crew. She's a model. He takes her and the crew, including the photographer, uh, up to the mountains and... Uh, you know, for, I guess, a retreat, but also, you know, a, a photo shoot and, and uh, kind of a, a an extended stay. So um, they go up to a lodge and it's, it's explained really right off the top that, hey, bears, watch out for bears. Just watch out for bears. We're in the mountains. We're in the woods. Bears. OK, that's a big part of it. But, you know, when you. Watch how things unfold in terms of uh, Anthony Hopkins, who is a billionaire, who he's very smart. He's very wise. He has a lot of interesting like trivia and bits of knowledge that, you know, of course, someone who, you know, I don't, he almost comes off like a know-it-all. Um, you know, he knows so much, but he's never actually been in this environment. And he gets called on it a couple of times. But, you know, the, the, story itself, the premise is one of a man kind of realizing what's really inside him. Um, you know, he has all this information and, and how to survive and all this in theory. But once, you know, because of the story and some circumstances that happen, he and, and Alec Baldwin get basically stuck out in the mountains. And so then it's a matter of survival. Like, how do they come out of this alive. Um, that plus, hey, the bear starts chasing them through the forest. So there's a lot to deal with. And um, I really thought it was interesting that, you know, the level of, I, I want to say the level of production in the movie, but it's it's more, I don't know, it's like a tone thing. It's like just a feel. Like they don't, they wouldn't make a movie like this today. And not that the story wouldn't be interesting and the, and the premise, but, the way it's made. And you've got Jerry Goldsmith doing the score, which just sounds really big and grand. And, you know, it's uh, it's very kind of typical of the mid to late 90s, even early 2000s type of film. Um, and it's really interesting that, uh, you know, this kind of adventure thriller genre still, you know, has room and and with these actors, really, that's what it is. I think these actors really bring in this, uh, this level of, of like weight and dramatic, like gravitas, you know, they make this more of a, of a, they make this a richer film than it probably would be with, you know, lesser actors or, 
um, even lesser writing. So I think this was, uh, I'm not going to say it wrong. I, this was written by, I think it was David Mamet. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I thought it was really interesting. It was, a, it was a good watch. It was a fun watch. I mean, it's got some thrilling moments. It's got a pretty crazy bear attack. You know, if you've seen The Revenant, you know that they really upped the level of of what that could look like on film. But I, this was way before it. And I think it really it set the bar pretty high. Um, and so, you know, I just feel like this is this is a movie that I look at as a, it's almost a remnant of a different time. Um, but it's just really well done. It's a solid film. It's not like, you know top tier it's not going to win any awards or anything but for kind of the thriller you know suspense drama thing but like with a level of adventure and you know being outdoors uh it's it's solid it's a good one um you know alec baldwin who's in it he he's kind of like you know plays a real asshole at some points but you see that uh he's able to ride that line and even when <laughs> there's kind of a, you know, a third act turn again, um, it's real interesting that he just he he plays the whole range. And um, I thought it was really good. I thought it was pretty solid all around. Um, you know, if you catch this one on on TV or if you happen to see it on a streaming service somewhere, give it a shot. I um, mean, it's really good. I mean, especially like right now, I'm recording this in winter in the season where everything's cold and everything kind of feels like what this movie feels like. So it really, I, you know, I always like that. I always like when you watch like a winter movie when it's in winter or like a summer movie during the, you know, the peak of summer. So this one is just, I don't know. It was like a real nice fit. The timing on this worked out that I really enjoyed this. Um, so, that's uh that's the edge from uh nineteen ninety seven so give that one a shot all right now that was sixteen seventeen eighteen let's get to number nineteen. This was one that I think I was probably i was probably more surprised by, but um I was definitely looking forward to because everybody involved with this is like right up my alley. This is like the kind of movie that if you just told me who's in it and who who made it, I'm down. I'm I'm there. And this is Last Flag Flying, uh, directed by Richard Linklater, um, starring Brian Cranston, Steve Carell, Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, three, I think, very kind of capable and and solid actors um, taking on a, taking on some roles that it's strange because if you don't know about this, uh, Last Flag Flying. It's based on a novel that was a sequel to the novel, The Last Detail, which uh, was made into a film in the 70s with Jack Nicholson um, and Randy Quaid. Um, and it's funny because it's same, and, and I forget the third actor's name, um, but it's funny because these are basically the same three characters, but in a very different story. And it's kind of like a sequel to that movie, but not. These are not the same characters in the same time period, the same exact premise or plot. So 
It's interesting to see the parallels, but know that these two are not related uh, directly. And so, look, all that aside, all that like connections or not connections aside, I mean, this film is really one that uh, on the themes of military service and the sacrifice and the grief of family members left behind. This one was really, I thought it was really powerful. It was really touching. And it comes at it from all different ways. It comes at it from a father who's lost his son. It comes at it from a man who's kind of hung on to the past and can't quite let go. Uh, and it's coming from a man who has clearly moved on and found a new life and a new joy to you know everything around him. And so seeing all three of those things kind of conflict and eventually kind of come into line with each other um, was really well done by, especially by these three actors, because they're all, even just as a type, I think they're all kind of wildly different. Um, you know, Cranston is the one that really kind of, I think, chews the scenery in a, in a good way, because he's an amazing actor and, and his character, Sal, is really kind of abrasive and, um, you know, but, but, but also kind of has a charm and there's like a delight in it. Um, it's just really like magnetic to watch and to see him interact with the other characters. You can kind of see how someone would get along with this guy, but you could also see how they might get annoyed with him after a while. Um, you know, Lawrence Fishburne, who, who his character is, is very firm. Charles is really kind of like, uh, set on this new direction in his life since the past. And, uh, but, but he's also very thoughtful. You know, he's, he's very kind of, he almost plays the father figure to these other two characters who are all, they're all the same age, but he's kind of the one that has really matured the most and gone the furthest in terms of his personal development. So that was interesting, but the one that, you know, the, 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 the actor and the character that really made this film for me was Steve Carell and, you know, his performance, um, of a man who has lost his son and, you know, maybe in the past when these three guys knew each other before was probably a little wild and a little bit, you know, um, erratic, um, went on to have a life with a wife and a, and a son that, um, came apart over time. And eventually, you know, he, he loses his son and that's kind of the, the beginning of the film. Um, so him going through those, going through that process of grieving and reconciling and, and trying to understand like what, what it is he's supposed to do with his life now. Um, you know, there's some great moments. There's some great quotes in this film that are, they really come from him. I mean, he really kind of makes this movie, you know, I mean, they all have their moments and their scenes and there's some great, like energy to it. There's a couple of scenes where it just feels like these guys weren't even in a movie. They were just hanging out. Um, it's just very natural style. I mean, it's Richard Linklater. I think that's part of a signature of his is that, you know, he wants it to feel casual and real and, and that really works in this film. And, you know, even down to, you know, the, really the end, the end of the film is where Carell really just like nails it. I mean, he has some moments in it that really um that really drive home the 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 theme of of grief and anguish and 
And how does one overcome this kind of heartache of, of so much loss? You know, um, he has these two guys to kind of support him, but he still has to deal with this reality no matter what. Uh, so that was really, um, it was really impressive. It was really well done. Um, you know, it's a very quiet and, and sometimes, sometimes, um, uh, sometimes kind of a very free form story. You know, it feels like you're not really sure where it's going and maybe the characters aren't even sure where this is going, you know, just through things that happen and they kind of, cause it's part of it is a road trip. I mean, part of it is like they go to, um, I think it's Dover to get the, to, to, I guess, claim his son's body and then bring him back home to bury him. But, you know, throughout this road trip, different things happen. Some of it's funny, some of it's frustrating for them. And, uh, so, you, but you get to know them along the way. And so through this process, it's, um, it's just really interesting to see that, you know, these three types of people, these, I guess, archetypes, they, they can all find like a common ground. And that is the, the humanity between them all that they all share. And so I thought, you know, this film did a really great job of, of showing that and, and revealing like the depths of, of one's pain, maybe the ones, you know, troubles that they, they have to work with and, and deal with in life. And, you know, it's funny, it's like on kind of a superficial level, I guess, but it's, it's not always clear like this, when this movie takes place. Um, for a moment, I thought maybe this was current day, but it's actually a period piece. Can you believe it? Cause it feels very contemporary. Um, but it takes place, but you know, not a period piece. Like I think most of us probably think like seventies, eighties or something like that. It takes place in 2003, which, uh, I feel like this is one of the first one, first period pieces I've seen, like takes place in the 21st century. Um, so that's a thing. That's a thing now, I guess. Um, but all in all, I'd really recommend this one. If you haven't seen it, and even if you haven't seen the last detail, don't worry about it. That's not really important. This is really uh, kind of a standalone story and a really powerful story. So definitely check that out. That's The Last Flag Flying. Uh, that's, uh, I think it's actually just an Amazon exclusive. So it's on Amazon Prime. And uh, see it as soon as you can. I'm going to get to our next one, which... Um, it's going to be a little hard for me to talk about this one because I didn't like it pretty much. Um, and that is Alfred Hitchcock's Rope from 1948. Now, it's Alfred Hitchcock. So uh, a lot of people are really like he's one of the masters of cinema, of suspense and, and all that. And that's cool. Um and, you know, I think for being in, being filmed in 1948, produced in 1948, I, the whole film is done as a one long continuous take. And so I'm not, you know, a historian of film on, on, in that sense. So I don't know, but I feel like that might have been the first time this was done. Or at least the first like high profile time this was done, which is, that's pretty cool um, from a technical kind of innovation standpoint. Awesome. I mean, this was, and it was pulled off pretty well. You know, it's of course done through like kind of hidden 
cuts and, you know, trick camera work. Um, but it's pulled off and you, if you don't worry about that, you don't pay attention to that. You get that this is all one continuous moment in time, you know, basically played out in real time. You know, maybe the most recent like big profile, uh, example would have been Birdman, uh, which the whole film was done in one take. And I think it was nominated for awards and all that cool stuff. But to think that was done in 1948 by one of the masters. Good, good. Um, that said, you know, the rest of the film itself, the characters, the plot, I, I just didn't, uh, I just didn't find much interesting about, you know, there, there is the premise that there are two characters who are about to host a dinner party. They're inviting guests over guests are on the way over. And at the start of the film, they kill a guy. They, they strangle him and they throw him in this chest, which they then decorate with candles and food. And they, they kind of make it part of the evening. And so there's like already kind of a sadistic, disturbing, uh, kind of unsettling nature to the film or to, you know, the, the, the party that they're about to have is like over this dead man's body. Um, so that right there alone, I think is interesting and intriguing. Like I, I want to see a story like this, like what is going to happen? Um, but, you know, the, the thing about it is, is uh, films of this era uh, in this style, they really I have a really hard time with them. And if you if you're a fan of this, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but I just can't really get I can't get around some things with uh, the acting style, which is is probably more at home in the theater, like on a stage, because it all plays out in this one apartment and the camera never cuts, so it's always kind of moving back and forth around, you know, areas of this apartment. And yet, because cameras were giant back then, the camera couldn't go everywhere. So it basically just kind of moved back and forth across this, you know, soundstage. And uh, so it almost plays, in a sense, it almost plays like um, maybe like a 70s or 80s like sitcom. You know, like a kind of a three camera sitcom setup where the camera just watches characters move back and forth across a living room or across a kitchen. And you never see the camera turn around or you never see the camera go around a corner. So, um, you know, it it just feels old fashioned. Um, and it's it's I don't know, at this point, like with so much that has changed in, in style of cinema and the language of cinema, um, I, it takes me out of it. And, you know, I could even get around that, but the style of acting and the, even like the kind of transatlantic faux high society, uh, kind of really snooty, like accent and dialect that the characters have. I mean, I get it. It's supposed to be about these kind of upper crust, um, you know, rich, you know, upper class people that look down on those who have less and consider them inferior and consider them disposable to the point where they would kill a man just to see what happens almost for fun. 
and to see if they could get away with it. So I get that. That that thematic element of the story is really interesting. And I feel like it could have been served better by maybe a more natural approach, a more realistic approach. But yeah, something about this film just doesn't really, it just shows its age so hard. It shows its age so hard in the sense that you can get with what it's trying to communicate, but the way it's communicating is, it's just not, it doesn't really, it just doesn't really work anymore. So, you know, if you're a fan of Hitchcock, you're a fan of like kind of that 40s, 50s era of filmmaking and, and acting, or if you're a fan of Jimmy Stewart, who's like one of, not the main character, but funnily enough, he doesn't show up for like 30 minutes. Um, who also, I, from what I understand, you know, didn't really like this film either. <laughs> and he's in it. Um, but if you're a fan of those things, I mean, give it a shot. Um, you know, I think for Hitchcock, this was certainly one that, you know, I think this was like his first film that was done in color. So, you know, there's a lot of innovation here technically. And maybe from a, a story, from a narrative, you know, standpoint, um, but there are just some kind of superficial things that really don't work for me. Now, um, whether you feel like the commentary is a little too on the nose or, or cause look, there's even a kind of a subtext of like homosexuality because these two characters that killed this guy, they are uh, maybe unusually uh, close to each other and they live in the same apartment and there's kind of a lot of, uh, I would say, overdramatic reaction to uh, the situation they're in. One is very kind of brazenly like, this is what, what this is what I've done and this is what we're going to do. And we're going to be we're going to get away with this. Whereas the other guy is very uh, uh, kind of nervous and anxious and panicky about. Well, what if we're found out and what if, you know, people know, figure out what, what is going on here? So, you know, you could read all that into it and maybe that's part of it. Maybe it wasn't intended. I kind of feel like it must have been. But uh, I feel like that would have been handled so much differently and maybe more, um, maybe more uh, uh, subtly uh, today or in recent times. So, uh, you know, it's a mixed bag for me. But on the whole, I, I can't really recommend it because I feel like it's been done better since then. And, you know, there's a certain reverence I have for Hitchcock. But, you know, I've watched a lot of early Hitchcock films um, and they're kind of boring. Those don't really do it for me. So uh, I'll take it for what it is. It's supposedly an important or a classic film, but uh, I'll, I'll leave it there and let you decide. So... That's rope. Now, this next one, um, I'll tell you, this is number 21 now. We're on number 21. And we're talking about Sweet Virginia from 2017. And this is starring John Bernthal and uh, Christopher Abbott. This is a really kind of a slow burn thriller that, I mean, really doesn't get going until like the last, like the third act. Um, but it's, uh, I, I feel like this is one that is really more of an exercise 
in creating tension and creating uh, more of a mood than anything else. I mean, all the performances are great. Um, everybody does a, a really good job. Um, the premise is pretty straightforward. You know, it's a, uh, there's a murder that happens at the beginning of the film. Thanks, Christopher Abbott. And, uh, through the, I guess, the investigation into it or, or as the story unfolds, you realize, oh, um, people related to the guys that were killed actually wanted them killed. And you, it becomes like a kind of a murder for hire plot um, that starts to go wrong because, you know, the people that were, uh, Christopher Abbott is supposed to get paid for doing this killing. He doesn't, there's no money to pay him. So now it's like who people are chasing the money, trying to figure out who's going to pay who and let, let's get this all settled. But he has no real, uh, his name is Elwood, by the way, his name is Elwood. I shouldn't keep saying Christopher Abbott because <laughs> let's hope he's not a psycho. Uh, Elwood instead is the kind of guy that doesn't take no for an answer and doesn't take, I don't have your money for an answer. So he gets down in really, really serious ways in this film. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, like John Bernthal, who I think in other films and, you know, maybe The Walking Dead, most people know him from, but in other films, he's played kind of tough guys, kind of brutish, kind of just, you know, really rough dudes. But in this film, he's... He's not that. And it's really interesting to see. Um, it's, it's exciting to see someone who kind of knows what he might be kind of perceived as and go against that. And so here he's a, like a father figure to one of the, you know, a young girl that works in his motel. You know, he's kind of a, he's more of a gentle soul. He, he's someone who's damaged, who was, it was like a formable, a former, bull rider, if I can say the words, you know, he's a former bull rider who was taking one too many hits, you know, taking one too many falls and is, uh, is just damaged. And so he's just trying to make it through life and just trying to like, you know, keep things together. And so you can see like from the beginning of the film, you start to see like these two guys, somehow they're going to end up crossing paths and it's not going to be a good time. And the film does some interesting things to, to set that up, but to also undercut it to, to really maybe misdirect or, or misguide what you think is going to happen. Um, even to the point where like halfway through the film, they do meet, they, the two guys do meet and they have dinner together. And at the, in that moment, they don't know who each other is. They're just kind of strangers that, you know, happen to catch an evening uh, where they're free and they both go have something to eat. And so the conversation, the the kind of underlying, you know, things that are, are going through each character's head, um, you know that this still won't end well, but you're not sure how now. Um, so. I thought it was interesting to see that, that that dynamic kind of turned on its head. You know, the the guy who you think is a tough guy, he's not. He's just trying to make it through life, just trying to hang in there. And I mean, he's almost like uh, like a broken man who who's just kind of lost his edge, who's lost his fire, you know. And meanwhile, Elwood um, is 
a gun for hire that uh, really just kind of doesn't have any principles in, in terms of should he do this or should he not do that. He just goes with whatever. He just basically anything in his way, he's getting it out of his way. And so that's really, um, it's really, it builds a lot of tension because you're not sure how these two guys, how this is going to turn out when these two guys eventually figure out who each other is. Um, it's, uh, it's going to be bad. So, you know, a lot of the film though, it, it is kind of a brooding, um, moody atmosphere that it builds. So it never really has like a big, uh, I mean, even towards the end of the movie, I'll just say it doesn't really have a big like showdown climactic, you know, moment. I mean, it, there is a moment, there is kind of a climax to the plot, to the story, but it's probably played more realistic as it would really happen in the real world, um, which is fine because the film never really leaves that it's going to be like some blaze of glory moment. It's uh it's about more of the, the atmosphere and about the, the humanity of these people, the, the realness of these people. So, you know, again, it's very small drama. Um, I feel like these are movies that this kind of movie is, is a movie that um, I wish they would make more of. And I wish people would have more chances to explore this territory of kind of small town life um, that uh, has moments of danger in it or could have moments of danger, um, but played with real nuance and, and subtle notes in it. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of times this, like a film like this in maybe in a different, different hands or in a different time, it would have gone off the walls. It would have been insane by the last act. You know, there would have been some crazy shootout or like, you know, like I said in the previous uh, episode about a film that ended in the middle of a hurricane, uh, you know, let's keep it small. If we're telling a small story about characters living kind of a small life, well, the resolution is probably going to be according to that, right? So I like the way this all worked out. Um, I, it's interesting that, you know, to see John Bernthal take this kind of a role and really own it and really make it something that I feel like only he would have done with it. I like it. So I'd say give it a shot. It's going to be a very slow burn. Like I said, it's, it's really quiet film that has some moments in it, but if the trailer looks good to you, then you're probably good. If the trailer looks boring or, or you confusing even, well, maybe pass, but I would say give it a shot. So that's, Sweet Virginia. Now, finally, this is our last one. This is so far, we're up to 22 now. This is a film that uh, I somehow missed. I say I somehow missed because it's directed by really one of my favorite working filmmakers right now. And that is Enemy, directed by Denis Villeneuve. And stars Jake Gyllenhaal and also stars Jake Gyllenhaal. And look, this is a film that apparently came out <laughs> several years ago now. And I felt like, aside from maybe his very earliest films, I feel like I'd seen all of Denis Villeneuve's films from Sicario, Arrival, um, 
Prisoners, uh, you know, Blade Runner, Dune. I mean, I, I've loved all of these films. I like his style. I like his way of telling the story, the way he uses a camera, the way he uses sound. I like all of these things. And somehow this one I missed. So I felt like, well, okay, I have to go back. I have to go find this and, and catch it and see what it's all about. And look, I'll tell you, this movie, uh, if you haven't seen it, there's going to be some real things that throw you for a loop here. You're not going to know what the hell you're watching. But some of it is, um, some of it's interesting in terms of how it approaches the, you know, the ideas of identity and, you know, what it means to really be you and what makes you you. So, um, the premise, uh, just kind of quickly, is that, you know, Adam, Jake Gyllenhaal, he, he plays a character named Adam that is a college professor that, um, Kind of lives like a, a little bit of a mundane, kind of a routine life. Um, nothing, you know, really interesting about it. But he's not necessarily um, unhappy with it. He just kind of finds going, finds himself going through the mo- the same motions day in and day out. Um, and you know, there's some hints at what this might seem like it's going to be about early on as he's given some lectures and he's talking about, um, you know, the, the way that societies and governments would use like knowledge and, um, you know, controlling ideas to kind of keep, uh, keep their people or their societies in check. Right. Um, so you might think, well, okay, this is going to be something about that, but it takes a left turn when he's at uh, he's talking to a guy that just recommends like, hey, you watch any movies, maybe check this movie out. It's called um, uh, Where There's a Will, There's a Way. And in this movie, when he rents it and watches it, he's just watching it. And I think it just kind of comes and goes. He doesn't really pay it any mind. He goes to sleep and... As he's, I guess, recalling parts of the movie, he recalls seeing someone in one of the scenes that looks like him. That is, that is him. And so he backtracks. He tries to figure out, like, what is this? You know, who is this? And how does this person look like me? And he ends up finding this person. And this person is a real person, is an actor who is in a film. And he finds this person, finds out where he lives. And it becomes a thing of, uh, now this man is almost not sure how this is possible, as I think anybody would be, but also why? Like, why is this happening? Why is he finding like a, a, a doppelganger, like an exact doppelganger? It's not like, you know, oh, he's kind of resembles him. Like it is him, right? So as you see him start to piece together like how to kind of get in this guy's orbit and find out what the deal is. You know, you see the story kind of flips to the other side of this actor who is getting calls from some guy that wants to meet him. And the actor, you know, his name is uh, Anthony and his wife sees the other guy, sees Adam and, you know, their, their orbits start to circle each other. Um, 
And eventually their lives kind of really get intertwined in some really strange and unsettling ways. Um, but, you know, there, there are enough shots and moments in this film that will completely uh, astound you. Like you won't know what to make sense of it. And I, because, I mean, I just, I was like, wait, did I miss something? I'm pretty sure I missed something because why is there a giant creature walking through the city? Like, uh, you know, like a giant, um, giant spider. <laughs> and if you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about because spiders are a theme here. And so I would say, check it out. Um, one to kind of just see like a really interesting exercise in acting where Jake Gyllenhaal is acting opposite of himself. And at one point they, he has to be the other person pretending to be the other person. It's, it's a little bit baffling, but it's really interesting to watch. Um, but also just to see some really off kilter, um, almost disturbing kind of stuff in here. Um, I can't necessarily, I would totally recommend it other than if you're a film, uh, if you're a fan of those things, um, because I think from a narrative sense, it has some interesting concepts and some themes in it, but doesn't quite all resolve itself. Um, I think it probably poses more questions than it answers. So that could be a really uh, challenging watch. Um, maybe if you're just feeling curious, that's one to check out. So that is Enemy from Denis Villeneuve. And that wraps up number 22. Can you believe it? I've done 22 films in a row, 22 days in a row. And there's a lot more to come. I, uh, I'm going to keep doing this because I just like watching movies. And so I want to do one every day and I'm going to record one of these every week and try and get this, uh, try and get some thoughts out about this stuff. Because look, something I've seen, even just with these movies in this episode is I, I feel like once I string a few of them together that all sort of revolve around a theme or, or like a narrative kind of premise, um, I don't know. I just kind of start going down that road. And like, if you look at all these films, it's like guys that are having issues with other guys. It's like, guys, come on, guys, guys, come on, guys, come on, guys, chill out, relax, relax with a H on the front relax. Okay. That said, check these out. If you have uh, the time, if you have the curiosity, uh, if you've seen some of these and maybe you, you know, maybe you have a different take on it. I mean, I didn't like a Hitchcock film. Sorry, but maybe, uh, maybe I missed something. You know, I'm taking the, I watched them one time and this is my kind of fresh first take. Maybe some of these I got to watch again. I think enemy, I probably do need to watch again. But I'm not sure if I really want to watch it again. <laughs> but so be it. So thanks for listening. Thanks for checking this out. Uh, stay tuned because we're going to have a lot more coming. Plenty more films to watch. So anyway, until then, we'll see you around. 